Okay, uh, welcome to the Grox uh, Science Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Kathy Olson. Uh, Kathy is uh, the founder and managing director of ScienceWorks, which is a consulting firm that uh, helps academic institutions and other, uh, I guess, kind of organizations that are involved in research, uh, create projects that are uh, well-supported and basically helps to link up funding with researchers. She's also uh, the former Deputy Director and Chief Operating Officer of the National Science Foundation. Uh, and so, uh, Kathy, welcome to the show, and thank you for talking to us. Well, thank you very much. I'm really excited about um, having this uh, conversation with you, Adam. Uh, so today I'd like to talk to you about uh, – basically the current funding environment for research. I think that it's, uh, it's a topic that uh, has gotten actually a little bit of, of press because uh, from, from everything that I've seen, that the, the current research environment in terms of funding is poor and very difficult. Well, just, you know, it's interesting. As you know, I'm no longer working for the government, and so I always like to say now I can say what I want to say with no hold barrier, but that's always happened anyway, even when I worked for the government. <laughs> the United States still provides more support for research, for um, research R&D and technology than any other country in the world. And so we are still the, the leader. However, all the other countries in the EU have also recognized the importance of the support for research and development that's so critical for their economy, for their security, and for their well-being. And as a consequence, they are actually increasing, and we really haven't covered inflation. And so it really is something that I said earlier to you that I, I lose sleep over um, at night about because I think as a nation, um, increasing in um, the opportunities to do research at universities, et cetera, I mean, it's so critical to maintain. But, but it's, it's interesting in terms of, you know, like the history of funding in the, in the sense that after World War II, the United States really recognized that you had to invest in R&D for our future. And if we look at the victory of World War II, it was really based on who had the best um, science and technology breakthroughs in terms of winning that war. And after World War II, um, NIH was established beforehand, but was really fortified. Uh, NASA uh, became, um, the space agency became NASA. The National Science Foundation uh, was started because people recognized that investment in research and development and investment in graduate education and the next generation of researchers was critical for the future of our country. Science and um, engineering and technology it still has very bipartisan support, but I think that they really have to recognize that we still have to increase and sustain this investment because it really um, is our future. You know, NIH billion. You know, I think it's like thirty-one billion dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a lot of money, and compared to what all the other countries are doing. But the thing is, is look what our investments over time with NIH. My mother died 40 years ago of breast cancer. She would still be alive today with the technology that we have. And that was based on basic research, fundamental research, and translational research in terms of support. And if we don't do it, what if? 
Yeah, there's, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of breakthroughs that we'll potentially miss out on. I think the, the current concern is that while NIH funding hasn't maybe drastically been cut, um, the problem is that the any increase in funding in the last several years really, uh, by and large, has not kept, place, uh, kept pace with inflation or just exactly. the, the rising cost of research. Um, so I found an article that said that uh, the NIH has lost about 22% of its purchasing power just since 2003. That's right. And, and again, that's um, a major concern. You know, when we were going through the sort of the mini recession and the stimulus money came and they really increased the budget of NIH, of NSF, the Department of Energy, uh, but it was a one-shot deal. And it was supposed to get money into the economy, uh, et cetera. And I think that it's very important to be able to sustain that. And what was interesting is a number of countries like Singapore um, as an example of one, and South Korea, during that period, they actually did a sustained investment in terms of R&D. Knowing, again, that was critical uh, for the future of their country. But but let me tell you about, you know, sort of a kind of a thing of one of my real worries. Uh, And it's it's about um, getting independence and support for beginning scientists. Well, when I started my career uh, in the um, early 70s in, in graduate school in 1974, um, we were expected to get our PhD in four years. Many of my colleagues did not even do a postdoc and got their first job. I had my first NIH grant, and I was in, still in my 20s, and I had uh, an independent position. The fact that for biomedical research, I think the average age right now, and I could be wrong, but it's in the early 40s uh, for your first R01, I think is a major concern for this country. And it's something that we might have to do something more radical, but I think we really need to change that. And I look at, by the time that I was 40, I actually had two or three different I'd like to say careers, from being an academic faculty member at the State University of Nome Stony Brook, being funded by NIH, to going to the National Science Foundation, uh, to moving up in positions, um, to working on the Hill. And if I thought that I wouldn't be independent with my own ideas and my own research until I was 42, I'm not sure whether or not I would have pursued that career. And I think that we're going to lose a lot of talent and a lot of people that can really uh, make major impacts in terms of this country. I think it really is dangerous that it takes so long because, I, I mean, I don't think that there's any shortage of people that are still interested in science. But right. for when an undergraduate starts taking a look, you know, starts getting involved in research and realizes that they're the person that runs their lab, the principal investigator, uh, is spending most of you know his or her time working on grants and is constantly worrying about it. I imagine that it is a major turnoff, and then you you start to see people say, "Well, maybe there's something else I could do. Maybe I'll get involved in a related field, or you know, I can work for an engineering company or something." But they they lose because just because you think about your career prospects and you think about you know t- twenty years of just like frantically trying to establish yourself and and still. And, you know, you get your Ph.D., and I know people do multiple postdocs, and just basically as they, they try to get the background in order to get funded. And I know that there's 
those faculty members at my own university that have been, you know, that have been quasi-independent for years, but they still can't really afford to have their own lab. They have to piggyback on more established researchers. And as a result, they kind of maintain this kind of uh, um, kind of like sub-faculty or this like kind of sub-researcher status that you can't ever strike out on your own until you've been working in in a kind of reduced capacity for years. You know, that was interesting because that was the European system. So, again, in the, the 50s and 60s and 70s, what you would have are very senior people, and they would have laboratories uh, with, you know, 50 or 60 people in the laboratories. And as a consequence, the United States got the opportunity of really um, hiring and um, stimulating the careers of a lot of uh, European scientists, scientists from Asia that wanted to be independent. And what I'm actually, again, very frightened of is that now um, our young people will look and say, wait a second, I want to be independent, but if I leave this country, if I go to another country, I might be able to carry out my research that I want to do. And to see kind of a, a loss that way, just like we were able to gain a lot of incredible talent who became Americans because our system enabled young people to start their independent careers and be independent um, at, a, uh, keep saying, at a very early age. And it's kind of reversed. And if you look at some of the policies that the EU is putting in now, they're trying to get younger and younger people into independent um, labs and faculty positions. So they're doing what we did in America during the 70s and 80s, and we're now looking more like the Europeans back in the 70s and the 80s. And I really do think that, you know, people need to be courageous and look at our policies and our practices to see, you know, what makes sense and what's best. Yeah, I actually, I already have uh, one friend that I know that has gone over to England um, as he was a postdoc in, in Chicago and basically decided to move on. Now, I've heard that squeezes and research funding aren't anything particularly new, but it sounds like this one has been particularly bad. How does it compare historically to to what we've seen? Well, one of the things that I think the doubling of NIH, when NIH doubled, it is fantastic. And I would personally like NIH to triple, and I'd like um, um, NSF and and that to even uh, double and triple, because I think that the money could be used for the benefit of the taxpayers, you know, but it would be really, it would not be wasted money. It would be incredible money for um, our economy and our health and well-being. But what happened is when it doubled, NIH didn't really look at how they did their business. And so the way the NIH operates is different than the National Science Foundation. So the National Science Foundation, about 60% of their money is committed in out years. And 40% is always going to be new money, regardless of what their budget is. Okay. And what they do is they make a combination of it's, it's how they do their grants. They either make continuing grants, and a continuing grant is that each year you get your, um, let's say, it, let's say you have a $300,000 grant. So when you, and it's for three years. Each year mm-hmm. you get um, $100,000. Okay. And so in your budget, you have to commit to your out years. Um, the 100000 and the 100000 
So at NSF, they will give some individuals, primarily more senior individuals, um, because they want to really set up a, a very strong um, interactions rapport with the uh, younger scientists, well, the beginning scientists. And what they'll do is they'll give a grant and they'll give the whole $300,000 at once. Okay? okay. And at the beginning, you, you make sort of less grants because more money is going out. But once you get this balance, okay, then mm-hmm. you have a nice portfolio and you can always be funding new ideas and um, a new people. So at NIH, everything is continuing. And so you are committed to your out years. So the, if you don't get an increase in your budget, the only new money that you're going to have are the individuals who, whose grants are now um, at their end. But okay. those PIs are going to be coming back in for renewals, mm-hmm. most likely. And so if, let's say, they've all been successful, and if you were going to do all of their renewals and you don't get a really increase in the budget or the budget goes you know, flat or even just a minor increase, then how are you going to start new people and other ideas? Mm-hmm. And so the best time to kind of done the combination of more of the, the standard awards with continuing awards was during the doubling process. It can't really be done without really hurting the community even more so now because of the fact that when you make the, the larger awards, you know, it uses up more of your money. That's really kind of a, a challenge. And um, because, again, you have to get new and creative ideas, okay, that's being funded and you have to be able to willing to test individuals that may not have the track record um, because you've got to give them the chance to establish that track record. Yeah, so that they can, so that they can, you know, venture out on these ideas. And so the difficulty right. is that it seems like that the the hardest or the, where the biggest squeeze is is on these young researchers who don't necessarily have the 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 same opportunities that they would have had a long time ago. And you know, I spent a lot of my career where I chaired the, the advisory panels, the panels that gave advice to the National Science Foundation. At the mm-hmm. National Science Foundation, the program officers makes the decision. The, the panel provides advice, and 99% of the time, the program officers, I'd say 90% of the time, will follow the advice of the panel. However, the thing that I used to get angst at is that it would be a young person, it would be a creative idea, and the panel would say, oh, this is so exciting. This is just wonderful, but they need more pilot data. And so one of the things that I would do at the end is I would ask all my panel members, and I'd say, I don't care where you put it. Even if you put it in the decline, or you put it in the resubmit because they need more pilot data, or the funds if funds are available, or must funds, give me what you thought were the three most creative, transformative grants. And many times, those grants were in the resubmit. Really creative idea, but they wanted more data. Yeah. And so as a program officer at the National Science Foundation, I had the opportunity, as long as I could convince and I, you know, I had an oversight, to fund those people, and I did. And so for a lot of young people, I wouldn't give them a large grant, you know, but I would recommend about two years, um, smaller grant, to be able to prove that concept. People in the government have that opportunity to do that. Do you think that the, the current uh, the difficulty in, in getting funding for these younger researchers, do you think it's – uh, starting to affect the ambition or scope of people's projects? Do you think that they're going to go to uh, safer projects? I, I do think it does. And I think that people feel that they can't 
they feel uncomfortable about putting something out there that might be very high risk but high payoff uh, because they're scared that they will not make it through the merit review panel. Money gets tight, ideas get more conservative. And I know NIH, you know, has the Pioneer Awards and NSF has the um, the Eagers and they're basically looking at mechanisms. But I think that there really should be some area that we'd be willing to fund high risk, high payoff, that if they work, they could really make a difference. NASA actually has a program, okay, because I used to be chief scientist for NASA. And it's um, really interesting, and it's actually done, um, it's, uh, NASA gives the money to another group that does it, and they fund really far-out concepts. Okay. Get through the merit review process. And I don't know if the, they still have the program, but they did when I was chief scientist, and I would be debriefed on some of the stuff, and I have to admit sometimes I would, like, put my fingernails in my arm and my eyes would roll. But you know what? If some of this stuff would work, it would be really, really exciting. And NASA was always willing to go beyond and, and take that risk. And we always learn something. You know, yeah, because- I mean, like, you know, when you did research, some of the experiments that didn't turn out where I used to say, well, I'm not going to get that science paper, right? I did learn something of value. And, you know, it could be a new technology that you um, published that is going to be very important that that was a consequence of this, even if you didn't prove your hypothesis mm-hmm. or support you your s- hypothesis. You still generated something that was, you know, some interesting data um, that, right. that, that can help, you know, kind of push other people along. So do you do you think that there's there's other good funding kind of avenues for people, even if they're even if the, the NIH and the NSF uh, grants are difficult? What are what are other options that people? Uh, well, of can... course, the, the private foundations, and they've always been an option for me. It was this uh, Sloan Foundation um, in my field of neuroscience. It was the the Whitehall Foundation supported research, um, the MacArthur uh, supported research, uh, March of Dimes. Because uh, I did, I was a neuroendocrinologist. Um, but you have like the uh, ALS uh, society okay. is supporting yeah. some very interesting research, uh, etc. Now they tend to be more, I like to say, mission uh, focused. But even in the federal agencies, um, you really have to understand the mission of the different agencies to get their support. And mm-hmm. so there, you just look at the the foundation. And I think universities are also looking at their endowment funds to provide a support for uh, their new faculty and for creative ideas as well and starting seed money that way. And you're seeing universities putting more and more money into the research. Uh, but I do think that it is something that the federal government needs to just keep investing because the best money, because there's no strings attached in many ways. I mean, there are strings attached because you have to publish and uh, share your data, you know, et cetera, in the federal government is uh, support from the federal government. Yeah, because at least then you don't, maybe there's less of a directed agenda. Whereas I think for some of the That's private right. foundations, they want they want you to be working you know on a very specific kind of topic, and and they cater their grants to people that are are kind of following that mission. That's um, right. And then you have to change your focus. So when I was when I got my PhD, as I said, I got it in, in four years, and now it's much much longer to get a PhD. And I think that they. You know, we need to look at policies and practices on why is it taking longer? Why should it be more than five years? Mm-hmm. And I only did a postdoc for one year when I was very, it was a really incredible time because it was in the late 70s, early 80s, 
and they were increasing support. Uh, universities were hiring new faculty, especially in the area of neuroscience. But I actually, in my heart, knew that I did not want to be an academic research scientist for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I was kind of scared. I didn't know where to go or what to do. And so it was my choice, not because I wasn't getting funded by NIH or I didn't have a position, per se, that I chose to go to the government. And I really loved my position and what I did in the government because I could really help people. And it fit my personality. It fit sort of my goals and my values. And so I, that was my choice. And what worries me is I think there's so many career options. And a Ph.D. opens the door, when you want to be a Ph.D. scientist, that opens the door to so many options from startup companies to uh, government to working at societies, uh, et cetera. But I think that what, what I scares me is that it's not that you're forced into it. It's that you want these different careers. And if you wanted a career in academic research, I, I want to be able to have policies in that that will enable you to have that career. Yeah, so that if it's something that you feel really strongly about, you you have that opportunity. That's right. And that's what worries me is that people that this is what they really wanted to do, okay? And I thought I really wanted to do that until mm-hmm. I kind of, you know, um, sort of went in the lab and I got in there at 10 o'clock in the morning. I didn't leave until 11 o'clock at night. I didn't talk to anyone for a couple of days because I was busy working. And then I thought, hey, I'm more social. I want to really interact with people and I want to make a difference besides just writing the papers. Yeah. Uh, so, so you're, but the concern is that for people that would, that would say, you know what, I really want to have that academic career, that they might wind up having to go into another field just because they don't feel like there's the support for that. That's right. Because they have two or three postdocs and they're going to wait until they're 40 years old before, you know, 38, 40 years old before universities will hire you because the university doesn't want to hire you unless you have a grant or mm-hmm. uh, whatever and you can't get the grant to get independence and you're not independent. Yeah, I've, I'm a, a friend of mine. Um, he's got a niece that's really interested in science, and I'm actually going to meet with her, I think, hopefully in a couple of weeks to discuss because she's interested in grad school, and she's looking in, just trying to tell her, be like, you know, there's a lot of great things, but it's it's not it's not easy right now uh, to, to do it. And I said, you know, maybe it'll be different in however many years it takes, you know, for people to get finished with their Ph.D., but just saying, you know, it's it's a really difficult environment, I think, to get started in. So do you think that – we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I want to kind of go into it. A, there was a JAMA article from January of this year that said that um, given international trends, the United States will relinquish its historical international lead on science in the next decade and unless uh, certain measures are undertaken. Uh, do you think that that's something that we're, that's, that we're really in danger of having happen? Um, I believe that the other uh, – many of the other countries – are investing more and making it more of a priority in terms of their overall strategy, government strategy. And if that continues and if we stay flat, I think that it's a trend that we need to be seriously taken seriously. And, and again, if we look at the growth countries, you know, we were started out as an agricultural society and then we went to manufacturing and then we went to more of technology, and now we're kind of in the knowledge base, you know, uh, et cetera. If we don't have the know-how and the technology and being first as we evolve, we're going to be left behind. Mm-hmm. 
And you do that by investing in fundamental basic research. And it's interesting when you look at some of the um, countries that were more developing countries that are now sort of our colleagues. And, and I'll take like Japan after the war, or South Korea now, and that they first started investing in more applied type of research. They're now putting a lot of their portfolio in terms of basic research because the basic research is the research that you need that's going to be the next MRI machine or the, you know, Google was funded by an NSF grant originally. Yeah, so it kind of it gives them, it's their, it's realizing that this basic research is really what, what, gets things going. So I was actually going to ask you about this. Uh, so the effects that the diminished research environment or the, the difficulty in getting basic research funding, how do you think it's going to affect um, other kind of areas of science like the private sector and medical advances? Well, the private sector is very different in the sense because they really have to pay to their board and their, uh, you know, I'm not a big government uh, business person. But the people that invest in their companies want to have their dividends and their returns. And yep. they, they think short term, okay? They're not taking long term. The government can actually think long term. And um, knowing that an investment today uh, might not pay off for five to ten years, but I, to me, the government is able to make those investments. And without those, we're not going to have the short term profits as, as well and the new, the new industries, et cetera. So, again, if you look at, you know, the trends in terms of the other countries, especially companies, countries that want to be um, powerful, et cetera, they, they really are increasing their investments uh, more and more in um, R&D. I was interested in terms of China. So one of my favorite, like, when I get on one of my roles, I go, we, at, in the United States, we write reports. And we write reports, and we write reports, and we write reports, and we make recommendations. So you look at, you know, the gathering storm and then the, uh, the return of it. And these reports are, you know, basically they, they do the same recommendations over and over again. The, the Chinese are taking all of our reports. They're translating them. I have one of my reports, and they gave it to me translated, right? But instead of doing more reports, they're actually doing things. Okay, they're actually so they're- the money and doing what we're telling them to do. And that, to me, is very frightening. We should be doing it, too. We know what to do. Yeah. We, we, we just we don't wind up actually following through then once. Yeah. Do you think, though, that ultimately if we start losing our investment in, uh, or, or stop investing in academic research and uh, basic research, that, it's going, that it can potentially affect, like, our ability to make scientific breakthroughs? Oh, yeah. 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 And, you know, when we used to testify at the Congress and that, it was one of those things some, one time – and, and I, I love the way they NSF answered, you know, because they were really increasing our, our – I was very lucky. Uh, when I was at NASA, my budget was increasing. When I was at NSF, my budget was increasing. So I, I always was um, able – I mean, I, I, it was a great opportunity for me because I wasn't cutting. I was – you know, we were increasing and, and doing new initiatives, um, activities. But one time in, we were asked the question, the fact that we are going to be giving you this increase in the money, what are you going to give us? What are you going to do? And, and when we sat there, and, and, and it was interesting, we said, we, we can't guarantee. But what we can guarantee, if we don't get the money, what will happen? You know, we can guarantee that we're going to be supporting X number of um, additional graduate students and undergraduates and research, and that's our scene corn uh, for the future. 
and being here in Illinois, you know, I'm looking at the uh, seed corn, and uh, it is important. And I said, but we know what would happen if we didn't get the support. Well, we can't say that, you know, um, a, a grant few um, is going to do X, Y, and Z. We yeah. know if you don't have the grant, we're not going to have X, Y, and Z. And it's interesting because the government won't make those comments. So when I used to talk about assessments and basic research, I always used examples that other people gave in my slides. And mm-hmm. so Vern Ellers, when he was um, on the science committee and um, the representative uh, for uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the Michigan area, um, he had a statement that basically $1 was a $40 return. Um, uh, it could be up to a forty dollars to $4,000 return in 5 to 10 years. And so I would use what they were saying uh, because, you know, I couldn't guarantee anything, and you can't. Yeah. But, but if you look at, like, the trends in science, so, like, in the um, – when Kennedy says we're going to land on the moon, a lot of the investment went into space. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the increase in our aeronautics industries, and, well, of course, we have Velcro now and tanks, so that's actually very good. But then you look at uh, during the uh, first energy crisis – when we couldn't get gasoline, we could pay for it, but we couldn't get gasoline, we started the Department of Energy and the amount of research that went in to support for energy, and then you see the payoff in terms of that field. And during the Cold War under Reagan, he supported DOD and, and NASA and DARPA for IT. And then you look at, you know, 15, 10 years later, um, Silicon Valley, you know, the, the lag in that. That was, you know, support that was sort of basic support that then – really has paid off for our industry. And then with the doubling of the NIH budget, you know, we really have enhanced, one, our survival, our well-being, but also uh, the pharma industry in this country, which is Mm -hmm. very strong. The money that we put in, there's a little bit of a lag sometimes in between, you know, when we start doing research and when we put it, when you think about it, it really does so much of of the things that we take for granted or that are just part of our, part of our lives now really kind of stemmed from an investment 10 years ago. And, you know, it was interesting because I'm, I'm old enough, you know, uh, before the web, but I was at NSF when they were starting the, um, I think it was the ARPANET and that kind of stuff and how excited. And I actually was part of a white paper on, on, on the World Wide Web. And I go, what is this? And I had to learn <laughs> about it. Now, I mean, can you imagine um, no. what our life would be back? I mean, you think young people have never heard of busy tone. They don't even know what a phone book both is. You know, yeah. uh, you know, etc. Et no, um, I, I mean, it, it's I, amazing. I, but that came from our investment. Yeah, I mean, I remember. Yeah, having you know, if I wanted to call someone, having to look up their their phone. If I wanted to get in touch with someone, you had to write them a letter. Yeah. You had to call them. You had to look up their number in the phone book or write it down somewhere. Uh, I was and we actually, always kept quarters because you had to make that phone call. Yeah, you had to be able to make phone calls from everywhere. I, you know, I actually remember uh, things like. Man, I cannot imagine surviving without Google Maps. Um, so um, I have I, one thing that I, I want to make sure that we touch on. So um, for people that are that want to help out with the situation, what what are things that um, that, that just anyone listening that is concerned about it? What what are things that they can do to help? Well, I think that they need to be very proactive, and um, they need to. I mean, this is my 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 feeling. They, they need to really let their congressmen and congresswomen and, you know, their representatives, both state, local, and um, uh, federal, know the importance 
uh, of these investments. And they also, and, and so that's important, but they also need to be, I, I like one of those things, talk to their next-door neighbors. Uh, really talk about the importance of research and what they're doing and why it's important. So I, um, since I'm not an active researcher um, anymore, but I have given um, a talks to the Kiwanis Club, to the um, Chamber of Commerce, to the, uh, you know, the, what is it, the, uh, at, at our local bar where the National Science Foundation um, in our building we have a, uh, a restaurant bar, and I've given the science, what is it, the, the French, the scientific, the, the, the cafe talks, and, and really have people, a lot of people don't understand um, the importance of these investments. They, I, I think that people don't understand um, how the, I, that the iPhone was um, basically four or five different, you know, from math to computer science to material science, uh, engineering, that all came together, and that all came from basic research. And just really being sort of a proactive and um, uh, supportive of the science and why it should be uh, funded, I think, it is critical. You know, I get on the, well, I get on the plane and, and, you know, someone says, what do you do? And I'll still say that I'm a neuroscientist and we'll kind of talk about the brain and, and everyone is very interested. And I think it's, it's, it's critical. And you've got to have public awareness because it's taxpayers' money and the taxpayers would want their congressmen and women to basically be investing in academic research and R&D. And it's just a, I think a college education is critical. Um, I don't look at it as how much does it cost and what we get out. What we get is an educated society, and I think that's critical. Okay. Um, well, uh, thank you for talking with us. Uh, I really appreciate the time. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Well, Adam, I think that this is great that you're doing it, and um, I, I want to thank you for contacting me. And as I said, it's something that I'm very, as you can see, I'm very passionate about. Because, you know, I am now aging, and you are my future. And I want to be able to have technology in my house that makes me able to live there until, you know, uh, basically have all these opportunities. And it's only going to be by investment in research and development. So, and in fact, I'd like to say that investment is in the people. And so it's not just items in that. It's, it's the people that we're investing in and the next generation and sustaining the generation that is still doing the research, and it's critical. And so I'm selfish. I want it for me. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with us, and I really appreciate your time.